Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. What a great time we've already had together. Now we get to dig into the Word of God together. We're in the book of Romans for the next couple of weeks. We're going to finish the book up. And uh, this has been a, a section of Scripture that has taken us quite some time to get through. We've been taking breaks to go through 16 chapters of Romans in one bite. It would take us probably every bit of a year, and that would have been... Uh, I, didn't, I never want the Word of God to feel like a burden. Not that that would have been true, but... You know, I like to move about the scriptures a little bit, but we're finishing up in Romans what we've been doing for, this is our fourth year going through this together in bite sizes. So this series has been called Righteousness Revealed based on uh, the, the, the chapter one verse where it says this is the revealing of God's righteousness. And we've entitled this sermon, The Welcoming Church, The Welcoming Church. And it's rightfully so what Paul's talking about here. This is a timeless uh, problem if you will, a problem that's been going on in society uh, since probably the beginning of things that people, I don't know if you've noticed, but people don't have a tendency to get along so well. Uh, sometimes it works. In Christ Jesus, you, think, you would think it would work better, and it should, but oftentimes we struggle. And so the question really that we're trying to answer today is, first of all, am I a welcoming believer? Am I a welcoming person? And then on a bigger note, are we a welcoming church? Last week we talked about this idea of God really transforming our hearts in such a way that we're on this new system, this new law of love, that we owe everybody love. We never stop owing that because Christ has loved and poured out His love on us so greatly that that is something we never stop doing. And because of that, now Paul goes to this section of Scripture about welcoming the brothers who are weaker in their faith or stronger in their faith that you figure out how to manage the difference. Now, people have all kinds of expectations for church. Some of you have a, a more traditional background. You might love the hymnals. I love the hymnals. Those words are powerful. Those songs are great. You might love the suits and ties. If you've showed up to get today, you've realized it's not quite what we're doing, uh, but I don't, I don't have a personal problem with it. Especially the pastor, y'all, some of you are really thrown right now, and, and I'm sorry, you should have texted me beforehand, I got a couple, and, and, and we could have rocked the suit. I would have been really soaked today, but that would have been alright. Women wear long dresses, you don't play cards, you don't dance, you don't wear makeup, you don't drink, you don't smoke, chew, or hang out with girls that do. That was kind of the thing that I heard growing up in, in some places. And, or maybe you're from more of a, a Pentecostal background, and our worship style is close to that, but you know, you're, 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 you're a one-hand holder, you're a two-hand holder. There's one comedian that says, you know, you've got the TV, you just stole the TV thing, or, or you've got the YMCA. You know, there's all these different styles of worship, and maybe you have a lot of preferences about that. Maybe you have a lot of ideas about what that should look like. We should sing more hymns. Oh my goodness, they have drums and electric guitar. Some of that stuff, I think, has kind of shifted over time. But there was a point where that really, really mattered. Or maybe you're looking for a cross on the roof and some pews. And this place, let's just be honest, is shocking. We're like in some kind of warehouse. I don't know what this building was truly designed to be. It doesn't really work as anything. Uh, but we're fitting a church in here right now, so we're making it work, and God's entrusted us with this space. I wonder what are you looking for in a church? What kind of church do you want to be if you're ours, if you're a part of what we're trying to do? What do you want to be? 
Do you want to be a part of a church that looks like you, talks like you, thinks like you, same color, same race, same political party, even the same favorite basketball team, baseball team? I mean, you would like to have it all in common perhaps, but that's not the goal of the gospel. Never has been, never will be. We're never going to quite reach that because the truth is God does call us to unity. He never called us to uniformity. Not ever. In fact, he has no interest in it. God is a God of variety. If you don't think I'm right, go out in your backyard sometime and just look at the variety of bugs that, I, that you, most of us can't stand. Like, why did he make 20 different kinds of bees, 20 different assassins to come and, and try to take me out? Why did he do that? I don't like any of them, not a single one of them. If it has a stinger, kill it. I, I don't like it. And yet he had such variety in his plan, and he has the same for his people. He loves diversity. He loves variety. So he calls us to be this kind of church that we got to admit is messy. If we all look alike, think alike, that's less messy. In fact, the way we're doing church is pretty messy. I've had people in our membership classes, half of the room will be from a Catholic background and half of them will be from a charismatic background. And I'm like, you guys are on opposite sides of what I would call a spectrum of belief, but here we are as one. And I think that's an amazing thing if God can do that. And he can in us if we'll be obedient. And so what does it look like to be a welcoming church? Romans 14, Paul is beginning to address this concept. And we're going to really finish the idea next week. And we're seeing Paul here teaching believers in Rome who are Jewish, are Greek, are Roman, their Gentile background. And he's calling them all to be a welcoming church, not a quarreling church, not a judgmental place, but a place... That welcomes. And there's four reasons I see him calling us to this. And so let's dig in to Romans 14, 1 through 12. He writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You see, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, "As as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. God bless the reading of his word. Amen? Amen. 
Why are we called to be a welcoming church? First is because of God's welcome. Because of God's welcome to us. This is really him building on the theme of last week. Because of God's love poured out on us, now we love others. Because God has welcomed us in. And let's be honest about this. Now, you may have a high view of yourself. I don't. I have a low view of myself. I know very well what I struggle with in the dark. I know what's going on in my mind sometimes that I have to bring before the Savior on a regular basis. I know that the fact that he welcomes me in is astounding. The fact that I'm allowed not only to come into this place into a, into, at Jesus' feet into the Holy Holies in prayer, but also that I might be allowed to get up and preach before his people, I cannot believe God's welcome on that note. And I know that oftentimes I am the weak. I am the weak in faith. Don't sit here and read sentence one and go, well, that's not me. I'm the strong in faith. That's a bad indicator that you might be the weak in faith. All right. So I think all of us should look at this text humbly and go, I don't know where I fit in this, but here's what I do know. Christ has called me to something. He's called me to be welcoming. He's called me not to despise, not to be judgmental. Those are the words he uses. The one who's weak here seems to be this idea of immaturity. Not about physical strength, not about uh, the inability to know things, but rather this is probably a new believer or someone that's really just come to faith in Christ Jesus, and they've not worked out the implications of the gospel. Tim Keller, when writing, he says, Saved by grace alone, there is no need to feel you can or must somehow keep God's favor through rules and through regulations. They haven't quite learned that piece yet. They still see it as a list of do's and don'ts. They haven't quite understood the Savior's heart. A lot of these people coming from a Jewish background would have really struggled adapting because this was the law of God to be strictly followed. And now we've come to this faith in Christ Jesus, which is in his sacrifice and not our own. And so we've got to adapt to that. And Paul says there are some that are still adjusting. They're, they're, in, they're immature or untaught in the faith. He says to them, an imperative word, a command, there's no getting around this. He says, welcome. That is to take into one's own home. That's the idea of this word. This collateral kindness, this granting access to one's heart. This is, this is more than, hey, welcome to church. This is, I'm going to do life with you now. This is what he's saying. I'm not going to shun you. I'm not going to say, how you're welcome in this place, but you're not welcome in my life. It's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about physical places. He's talking about this idea of bringing them in to your own access to your own heart. This idea of friendship is in view. And you're not doing it for the point, and this is sad, but maybe it happens, that you would bring them in just to argue with them. I think this doesn't, necessarily happen in church often but it probably does happen in life often like oh somebody walks by your cubicle and you're like oh come in here I want you to tag in on this conversation that I'm having so we can either make pile on to this guy who's clearly wrong or we can pile on you because I've been wanting to pick on you that's something we do often and so you bring them in you welcome them in but the, the whole point is just so you can share your opinions this word opinions is careful it's and the King James uses this word, doubtful disputations. These are things that the Bible is purposely unclear about because they're not essential. If they were essential, the Bible would be clear. 
The Bible makes some mention of things about what to eat, and, and, and this verse talks about diets and it talks about days. Those are the primary things he talks about, what you celebrate and what you eat. That was a major driving force in the Roman church because that's a Jewish thing to be dealing with. Should we still be avoiding pork? Should we still be avoiding these foods? Should we be celebrating the festivals, the Jewish festivals? Should we? And to that, Paul, the, the king rabbi, the one studied under the rabbi of rabbis, Gamaliel, he says, do it unto the Lord. Whether you observe it or don't observe it, it's got to be to the Lord. Be fully convinced that this is what God desires for you to do. Why does he say that? Why is he able to say that? Because it's not essential to the faith. Not anymore. It's not essential. And so don't bring them in over these disputable matters, matters that God has not clearly forbidden or clearly commanded. One writer says the basic issue is that some of the church members cannot distinguish between matters of basic principle and individual preference. And so we argue about them. Verse 2 tells us a little bit about what's going on in this time period. They're eating, some are saying you can eat whatever, and others only eat vegetables. That might have seemed funny to you. It probably, you should have picked up all night and go, they only eat vegetables. What's that got to do with anything? All right, so we've got some vegetarians there in the Roman church. Why is this a problem for them? And the reason is because those who were abstaining from meat were judging those who were eating it. And those who were eating it were like, well, you guys, you know what? You don't belong around us because we're super Christians. Like, we've really got it. And technically, Paul's saying, technically, they're right. Technically, food, several pieces of Scripture talk about how food is no longer unclean. It's just about what you do unto the Lord, honoring Him in that. And so, technically, they were right, but their, their observation was totally wrong. Oh, they don't, we're not welcoming them because they're crazy. They're loonies. And these guys are over here going, but you're eating meat. And why is that an issue? Well, because in, especially in Rome, but several other places in the Roman Empire, the, the Romans are, are sacrificing, almost all of the meats are being sacrificed to idols. They're being sacrificed in the temple of Apollo and, and various temples throughout the world. And so when you go to the marketplace, there's, little, there's almost no way for you to know for sure that the meat you're purchasing wasn't sacrificed to some false god. And so the people who are weaker in their faith are uncertain about this. And I would say rightfully so. Should we eat this food that's been offered to some god, some false god? And so they feel judgmental of the party that's eating it. They choose just to eat vegetables. Now, I could go all over Scripture to talk about this. Paul talks about this idea of we don't need to worry about what's, ha- what's been offered to idols because let's remember this. These are, just, these are just wooden statues. They have no meaning. They're, they're worthless, and if that's the view you have on them, you understand very well that this is nothing, then you can have a freedom here. But what does Paul call them to? You notice this. He doesn't say, hey, those of you who are eating vegetables, you need to stop doing that. You see that in the Scripture? No. The impetus here, rather, is be fully convinced. What, what Christ is telling you to do, if you feel currently convicted about that, then don't. If that's where you are, but don't be judgmental of those who don't believe, don't have that conviction of something that's a secondary and non-essential. Just like these people over here. You guys got to start eating meat. Like, you got to get with it. Y'all are totally... No. Because why? Because this is someone else's servant. That's the argument Paul makes next. Is we don't, we're not each other's master. I'm not your master. I'm a pastor, which simply means shepherd. And I need the great shepherd just like you because I like to wander off and get eaten by wolves just like you. 
And so I'm no one's master. No, we all have one master and we're not each other's. And so let's serve the one true king. And to that he says, be welcome. And he says, do not despise. To those who are, quote, strong in the faith, he says, do not despise them. This word literally means to make no account of. That is, you shrug them off. You just say, you know what, I'm not going to take time with you. I don't have any interest in dealing with your arguments. And that's not the appropriate response. The response of one who's been in the faith longer, who understands the gospel and understands the implications of that, should take time in fellowship and say, Okay, we disagree on this, so let's see if we can navigate it together rather than me just say, I want no part of you. That's the idea of despise here. And that one, the other one is, of course, passing judgment, which is easier for us to understand. No, we should be welcoming. He's going to say later in Romans 15, verse 7, he says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, I want you to know something. You're getting to see a little bit under the hood, but you could see this. If you went on the website, we have 10 essentials here. These are things that we believe we should have in unity. 10 essentials we should have in unity. What we believe about God, God the Father, what we believe about Jesus, His Son, what we believe about the Holy Spirit, what we believe about the Bible, about mankind, about salvation, about eternal security, about eternity, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Those are the 10 things that we share in unity. And when we take people through membership class... I make sure, are we clear on these 10 things? Because if we're not, no harm, no foul. We're probably just not the right fit for you. You know, there's, there's a lot of churches. And I trust a lot of these local pastors. I would say, you know, go, go, go where you feel welcome. But just these are things we should be in unity about because I believe these are things the Bible is really clear about. And so we have unity there. But then our second principle is in non-essential beliefs, we have liberty. We have freedom, unity, not uniformity. We, we don't have a dress code here. Sometimes that backfires. In fact, I've had people say, you know, I'm going to show up in a Speedo one of these weeks. That scares me. That scares me. That's a lot of freedom. Um, I, we've had people show up in pajamas. I mean, you do you. I, I'm trying to listen to what the Lord tells me on that, but I don't believe in dress codes and things like that. I don't see that as being totally mandated here. And so the one thing we need to have unity on is doctrine. Doctrine. Not dress code, not diets, not days. And in all of our beliefs, our, th- our final is that we would show charity. So even in essential things, we need to show love. We should always be loving because, again, nothing underwrites the law of love. Years ago, at our Wilson campus, we had a, a young lady who was young in her faith, um, who began attending, and her husband had just left her. and She was coming every Sunday and weeping through most of the service. One Sunday, uh, she got so caught up in the sermon, so moved by a certain point, <laughs> that she exclaimed the D word really loud instead of amen. <laughs> um, it was shocking. Uh, stunned silence filled the room. And afterwards, some came to Pastor Gary, the pastor in our Wilson campus, and Asked, you know, what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do about our behavior? And he said rightly, and something I would say now, and the kind of church I hope we would be, nothing for now. Leave her alone. Give her some room to grieve. Give her some room to grow. Do we really believe what we preach? Do you know, one of our vision statements here, one of our main statements is, come just as you are. Some people are, are 
some crazy things, all right? So am I. Come just as you are, and then it finishes, and be forever changed by the love of Jesus. Now, we, we have an expectation that the love of Christ is going to so compel you to change. Not my words, not our arguments, but the love of God pressed in on your life is going to cause you to go, you know, I want to be something more than what I am now. But initially, you come just as you are, and some of you are cussing a lot outside of this place, and it might slip in service. I'll give you a few, all right? <laughs> Let's not test that one. That would be a little awkward, but I mean, you know, it, it happens, I guess. Do we really believe this? Come just as you are. Are you a new believer? You're just starting your walk in faith? Awesome. You are welcome here. We're thankful. You're not going to get everything right because we don't get everything right. But we don't judge. Instead, we come with our welcome. The second reason, God's welcome and then God's because of God's son. Because of God's son. This is the wonder of what he says in verses 4 really 7 through 9 specifically, he begins asking this question, who are you? Are you their master? Are you in charge of their life? No, it's an emphatic no. We understand it when we read it. So who is? Who is the master? He tells us, and that's why he spends this almost awkward amount of time talking about the living and the dead. And you're like, where does this belong in this? The reason it belongs is because Paul is trying to make very clear a principle that our master is Christ Jesus and not each other. We serve him and him alone. Why? Because he is Lord of everything. He is Lord of all, everywhere, everything. He is Lord. And this is wonderful news to us. The reason it's wonderful news is because now we can, we can frankly and clearly know we're not in charge. And I know that's a hard shift for a lot of us who have been in the driver's seat for quite some time. Now we're making this adjustment of, I know I'm not in charge. And it should already be clear to you. Like when you make a decision, when you say this is going to go this way, isn't it frequent how often it goes a different way than you planned? Like you had this really, and I like to strategize. I like to plan things down to the details. And I'll be wrong about half of them. Like, man, I just couldn't plan. You know what you can never plan? The response of other people. You can't plan it. So you think, man, we're going to do this event as a church. I'm going to get up and preach this sermon as a church. And you guys will come up later and say, you know, when you said this, it really meant a lot to me. And I'll go, I don't think I even said that. I don't think I said that. But I guess the Holy Spirit did, so praise God. That has happened. You wouldn't believe how many times that's happened. I plan. I make my plans, but God is in charge. He's, he's the one who lights the path. He's the one that guides my steps. And so this question, who, whose are you? Well, I'm Jesus's. Why? Because he's the Lord of both the living and the dead. I'm his servant. This word servant here in verse 4 is the word oiketes, which means, oikos means house. This is the idea of a household servant. This is someone who serves in the home. He serves the house of God. That's this type of servant. And the master here is Christ Jesus. And he esteems that. And then he goes into this idea of days and he says, you know, no matter what, whether it's what you eat or what you celebrate, these things are somewhat irrelevant compared to how you honor the Lord. If, if you do these days, and look, we celebrate all kinds of stuff as a church. And if you dig into some of it, you'll go, boy, there's some odd history there. There's some odd history around Easter. Did you know that? There's some odd history around Christmas. It's loosely based on a Roman 
festival, Saturnalia. It's, a, it's this idea of the longest day of the year, the winter solstice. There have been celebrations for millennia about this particular day of year, this time of year. We made it. I would say we sanctified it. And then we unsanctified it. We sanctified it. And then we said, you know what, let's throw presents in the mix and start taking trees in the house and doing weird stuff. And I'm not saying I don't do that. I like a Christmas tree. I'm not, again, let's, let's stay where we're at, all right? Not judgmental, not despising one another. But we should honestly approach the holiday and say, there's some wild history there. And some people will look at it and say, you absolutely cannot celebrate it. You cannot celebrate these days. Some of, you are on, some of them are on your friends list. I, I would say these... These are people doing the first piece wrong. And I wonder if it's honor to the Lord or just obedience that's meaningless. I have to do this because God told me to rather than I, I want to do this because God has encouraged it. I want to do what Christ has told me to do. I'm going to celebrate Christmas because I want to honor Christ in it. Because I see it as an opportunity for the gospel. You're not going to convince me otherwise because I've noticed something at church. People will come to church around Christmas and Easter. We have a great name for them. We call them Creasters. And maybe that's you. Don't be offended, my friend. I'm glad you come. Come at Christmas and Easter. But I have a, I'm just going to let you know I have a secondary plan. That is that the love of Christ would compel you. That you would have life change. I'm glad you'll come at one or two times a year. I'm going to use that opportunity well. I'm going to do very well... The whole month of December, we have a whole sermon series based around Christmas. Not because the day is something magical. or Most people think Christ was actually born at a very different time of year. But we've sanctified it and made an opportunity for the gospel. And if we use that well, then it's to the honor of the Lord. Same with Easter, who has, let's be honest, what is the bunny doing? Why are there eggs? What's going on? We've made Easter weird. And yet... And yet we can use it as an opportunity for what better day. We should celebrate the resurrection all year long, but if we only get them at Easter, we're going to drive it home. Like, you know what Christ did for you? You wouldn't believe it. In your brokenness, in your sin, Christ died for you and loves you that much. Spared your life and didn't spare his own son so that you could be free. Oh, yeah, I'll celebrate that. I'll make it holy. Some of you are really going to be bothered by this. Just a couple of weeks. We're going to be out in the parking lot for trunk or treat. Oh, Lord, <laughs> Lord, help us. And we're going to dress up as Disney characters and Marvel heroes. And we have a kind of an unwritten rule of nothing spooky uh, because I don't see what value that adds to the child's experience. But hey, but people will be coming through. We'll see all kinds of gremlins come through. Over 500 people have come most of these years. It's insane. We're bringing another church in this year. To join us. They're going to bring their 50-some adults and do games and food. We're making it bigger instead of smaller. I don't know what we're doing. Why? Because maybe, just maybe, I'll get an opportunity for the gospel. This year, I'm doing something different. I'm wearing a shirt that simply says, how can I pray for you? I'm not dressing up. My family is. They've got to figure that out. I don't know what they are yet, but I'm just going to be talking to people. and How can I pray for you? What? And that might be scary to some of you, but that's what I want to be a part of. is a church that makes the day about Christ. You know, we can mess that up on Sundays. You know, this is supposed to be a holy day of the week. The day of the Lord. We could mess that up too if it's not about Jesus. We could come here like some kind of social club and just fellowship. But a fellowship without Christ is no good fellowship. 
because of God's son. That's why we eat this or esteem this or do celebrate this day or wear this. It's because we love Christ and we believe this is what he's calling us to be. Lord of all, Lord of everything, Lord everywhere. Philippians chapter 2 Verse 9, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. He is Lord of all. So I'm wondering, are you, are you the one who's always judging how Christ's servants are doing? Stop that. Look in the mirror. How are you doing? Are you following Christ? Are you, are you listening carefully to what he's instructing? Are you their master? No. But you have a master, and it's not you. It's not you, my friend. Here's the third reason. Because of God's family. Because of God's family. Because of his welcome to us. Because of his son poured out for us so that we could be free. And now because of God's family. This is what he does in verse 10. He shifts the question. He's, he's now saying, you know what? Guess what? It's not just that you're the servant of another. It's that you guys are brothers and sisters in Christ. You're family. You're family. And don't get me wrong. Families fight, right? Families fight better than, than you would probably fight a stranger. But at the end of the day, in a good family, in a family that loves one another, they don't pull away from the table. They don't make the decision, well, I don't like this family anymore. No, a family that's really based on the love, hopefully the love of Christ, but based on the love of the father and mother, even when they fight, eventually they come back together. This is the idea of God's family, that it should be a sanctified family, that the love of Christ has been poured out on it. So they never push away and say, I don't want to handle business with you anymore. No, we can't do that. We're brothers. We're brother and sister. We're family. We're family. You know, my, my kids, they fight a lot. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if y'all have children. If you have children, if, if they got along all the time, I don't know on what planet you, yours came from. Mine didn't come from there. Mine came from, uh, and they're kind of violent. Like, I, I don't know what's, I have a boy and three daughters, and you would think, okay, there'd be a lot of Barbies, and there'd be a lot of playing house and teacher and all the things that I remember my sister doing growing up, and there is some of that. But often I'll go in their room and they literally have all, each other in a headlock. And I'm like, whoa, okay. I wasn't expecting this from my girls, all right? My son will be away from that because he's just going to get in trouble if he partakes in the roughhousery. But they get in there and just beat the snot out of each other. And I'm like, wow. And they're happy. I'm like, okay. I mean, and y'all watch out for my, my middle daughter, all right? Probably UFC bound or prison bound. One of the two. Um, somewhere, I'm just, I'm hoping it's the first. Um, she's dangerous, y'all. She's dangerous. But families fight. But when the fights get bad, and they do, you know, they, they nitpick. And I remember doing this with my siblings, just, just verbally assaulting each other. If nothing else, just because we were bored. I mean, on a long trip, just being verbally abusive. And I tell them sometimes, often in the car, they need to work this out. And the reason they need to work this out is because they're going to keep on seeing each other until they die, all right? Because that's the kind of family we are. We're tight-knit. I don't have any plans of them, you know, running off and not being together. We have the love of Christ in our house, and so we're going to be together. And so y'all need to fix this because we're going to spend a lot of time together. That's what I tell them. They're like, 
It's true, though. I think my parents must have said something similar because now I've found that some of my dear friends are my siblings. My mentor is my father. Like, this amazing thing can happen in your family if the love of Christ is there. It's true for us, church. We are that kind of family. And guess what? What I'm telling my kids is way more true for us. We get to spend eternity together. And we need to say it like that. You know, we get to spend eternity together. Not, oh my God, we have to spend eternity together. (laughs) We get to. It's a privilege. We have Christ Jesus. We get to spend everlasting together. That should be a blessing. Be careful how you treat each other, not as just flippant people. You're brothers and sisters of the faith. Treat them like blood. Treat them like they really are in Christ Jesus. They're your family. Ephesians 2 says, That is why you are no longer foreigners and outsiders, but citizens together with God's people and members of God's very own family. 1 John, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who who does not love his brother whom he can see, (laughs) who he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Again, it goes back to that idea of the law of love. Nothing changes there. We love because Christ first loved us. Now, the last reason is the one that's a little more prickly. I'll be honest about it. It's a pricklier point, but it doesn't mean it's any less true. And that is because of God's judgment. Oh, we don't really like that word so much, Jonathan. Can we have left that one out? You know, I'm good with welcome and God's son and... We're family in love. No, God is also just. He's just. God is a righteous judge. Let's be thankful that he's a perfect judge. We have earthly judges. They're imperfect. We have earthly lawyers and legal system that's imperfect. There's nations all around the world, legal systems that are close to perfect, but not, not a single one of them are. And yet the law, the judicial system of heaven is perfect. And one day we will sit in a certain type of judgment before God. This is interesting, okay? Something that I think a lot of believers are unaware of. Here in verse 10, you'll notice that Paul says something. He says, we. He says, us. Paul is including him, himself, in this sentence about a judgment seat. In verse 10 it says, we're going before the judgment seat. Look at this. Verse 10 and 11, why do you pass judgment? For we all stand, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. The word judgment seat there is the Greek word bima. We use this, people used to be more familiar with this terminology, it's the bima seat of God. There seems to be indicated in the, in the last days, at the end times, that there's going to be two seats of judgment. The white throne room, the right throne judgment, and the bima seat. This Bema seat where Paul says he's going to be a part of, and the believers, that's where we're heading. In Christ Jesus, the Bema seat. What is that place? It seems to be a place where we give an account. We give an account. I don't know what that means exactly. And you know what? The Bible is not super, super clear. Other than that, we're going to this place. Verse 12 says we're giving this account. And it seems to be the idea that we have opportunity to explain ourselves. Not that we're judged in the sense of damnation or judged in any other sense, but rather it's kind of what my impression of it is going to be is a sit-down moment like you sit down with your father or mother some time ago and they ask you, you know, why did you do that? And my kids like to say, well, I didn't mean to. Well, it's not my fault. 
You know what we're not going to do at the Bema seat? Those words. We're going to go, you know, I don't know what all we're going to look like. I, I, I don't know if God's going to have this thing on film or like he's going to do instant replay and say, what was that? What was going on there? I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's all going to flash before our eyes suddenly or if we're going to spend a lot of time with Christ talking through these things. I don't know. Or maybe it'll just be a, a brief synopsis of some big ones. I don't know. The, the, the idea here is not simply bad judgment, but good. The, the account is not all about, well, I messed up here, here, and here. I think it's going to be a total account of, wow, praise. Praise God. Look, look at that. And Jesus, well, I think there's, there's crowns. There's all these things the Bible describes. I don't know. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. That's the cool thing about heaven is that no one really knows. No one knows when the end is coming. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. We don't know. But there is this opportunity to give it account, the beam of seat. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, We must all appear before the judgment seat, that's the beam of seat, of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So there's a moment of accounting. He also writes in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Christ Jesus. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. That one scares me a little bit. I don't know how much of that is symbolic or how much is literal. It's hard to know for certain with that one. However, there does seem to be a time of testing where we give account and our, our many works are laid before the Father. And they're judged by fire. It reminds me of a parable that Christ tells. And I kind of want to close with this thought. It's a famous parable. And that we often kind of, when, when we read it now in our scriptures, we may have heard it so many times that we read it very quickly. But the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents. Y'all, y'all wanted to give me some ethereal music there. I thank you. Thank you for that. The parable of the talents is this idea of um, Christ leaving or the master, he tells us the story as a, there's a master and three servants, but I think Christ really indicates himself in this. And, and that is that the, the master gives one ten talents, one's five talents, and one two talents. And the one with ten goes and makes ten more. The one with five goes and makes five more. They use it wisely. They put it to work. And the one with two goes and buries it. And I think that's the sense of the gospel here, that maybe you could make, make a bigger assessment. You know, to some God gives more giftings I guess Uh, you can kind of look around and say well you know why did that one guy get the ability to sing and to play acoustic guitar and get up and preach I can tell you it's stressful sometimes but some are given more giftings or or whatnot that's somewhat implied there but I think the bigger thing is this nugget of the gospel that you've been given maybe you could even look at it this way some are given a great many opportunities some are given a lot of opportunities to to share the, the wonder of Christ Jesus with others. Maybe they were born into a family that was far from God, and so they have a multiplicity of opportunities to share their faith. And yet the master's going to return at one point and give an account. And if you remember the story, he says, well done, good and faithful servant, to the one with ten. Well done, good and faithful servant, to the one with five. And to the one that buried it, the two, he says, you wicked servant, be cast out. 
So the question really here, this accounting term is, what have you done with Christ? That's the question I often ask when reading that parable. What have I done lately with the gospel? What am I doing? What what about my life would show that off well? What about my works would show and would stand up to the test of fire as gold, pure gold before the Father? What am I doing lately that's eternal? I can't stop asking myself this question lately. I just can't. Things have happened in my life lately. There's been so much, there's been a lot of sickness and illness in our church. There's been some heavy news that some of you have been given. Really heavy news. We had a death in my family. There's just been heaviness in my life. And I can't stop asking this question. What really matters? Because it isn't all this temporary stuff I've been caring about. It isn't how well my fantasy football team is doing. That was just a, that's an example. I'm not saying you don't get, you don't play fantasy football. Don't hear me say that. I'm simply saying that the things that are temporary don't matter so much to me anymore. I'm having a hard time going back to them. And I think that's God. I think more and more what's eternal. Well, there's only a few things that are eternal. What have I done with the gospel? People in my life? Who is in my circle of influence? People, 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 relationships, relationships, those are eternal. Those really matter. When I sit before Christ someday, I really want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I really want to hear that. And I know I've made mistakes, and so have you, and that's not the point of that last, that last point there of Paul. It's not the point. Not that you would sit there and be grieved or think, man, I'm just living. No, it's, what am I doing for the eternal <laughs> That's, that's what this should point me to is what am I, Christ Jesus is all. He's everything to me. He's Lord of all. If that's true, how well am I serving him? As for these disputable matters, they just don't matter that much. <laughs> They're disputable for a reason. Do you understand why the Lord wants you to be a part of a welcoming church? It's because he wants to be us to be the kind of people that show his love really well that show love and grace to all that they can really hear from Jesus because a lot of churches put up a lot of walls that are unnecessary that people can never see the gospel through them and I don't want to be a part of that kind of church are you a welcoming people because of God's welcome because of his son because we are family and because you know you will one day give an account before God the Father. Let's pray together, church. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are indeed all-loving, all-powerful. You have the ability to set us free from ourselves, from our brokenness, from our sin, and you did that by the love of your son Jesus, by the sacrifice of the cross. I'm so thankful for that today. That's a good reminder to me in this moment. That there's a lot of things that I hold as very important. I have opinions just like everybody else, Lord. And all of us sitting in this room, we have some strong opinions about some things. And here's what I want to do with those opinions before you now, Father. I want to lay them at your feet and you test them. You test them before fire. (laughs) You refine them and, and, and give them back to me as ashes or gold. If they don't matter, if they don't unify your people, then help me to hold them to the side. Not centered, but hold them out beside me as not essential things. Help us to be the kind of church that gets really, really serious about these important doctrinal, these these things that really make for real belief. The unity of the gospel, Lord. Let us get serious about that. 
but not all these other things like carpet color and whether we should do this or that or celebrate this holiday or that. Lord, let us put those aside. Paul seems to be doing it. Help us to be like him, to imitate Jesus. We want to be more like Christ. Help us to not be the kind of church that puts up unnecessary walls for unbelievers that would come in here and feel unwelcome because they, they feel like they don't belong. Help us to not be that kind of church. But rather have open arms and that, God, you would do the work. That your love poured out on them would, would cause them to be obedient. Not our arguments, not our many opinions, but rather your gospel would change lives. That's always been true. And it will continue. And I pray we can be the kind of people that model the gospel well. We love you. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.